Well, good morning, High Street. How are you this morning? Well, the youth group's doing good. I'm not sure about the rest of you. I am so thankful to be here. It's always a joy to speak to my church family. Uh, you have no idea how much you mean to Sharon and I and what a blessing that you have been in our lives. And I want to take a moment just to say thank you. Uh, I am so appreciative of my church family, my pastor and pastor's wife and staff. What a great staff. They make me feel young, and that's a good thing. And I'm just grateful to be here today. I want to invite your attention to John chapter 3. A few weeks ago, I, I have been teaching through John in our um, community group, Hilltoppers. And a few weeks ago, I was teaching through chapter 3, and the Lord really laid on my heart some things that, you know, I knew, we've studied, him, we've read Scripture before, but the Lord just seemed to emphasize some things in my life that uh, have really uh, become a uh, conviction to me and a challenge to me, and I wanted to share that with you this morning. You know, gospel conversations are extremely important, and God gives us opportunities all the time to have these conversations with people that we come across. I was talking with my neighbor the other day, uh, Sharon and I were talking, and uh, he informed us that his grandparents lived down by the old High Street building and took him to High Street every, and he emphasized this, every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, and every other night that the doors were open, and my neighbor, who I had no idea was a Christian, said that he made a profession of faith when he was a child because his grandparents took him to High Street. And somebody had a gospel conversation with him. Jesus has a gospel conversation in John chapter 3, and it's an extremely important conversation. It helps us to understand the gospel. I think sometimes in our attempt to please God and in our attempt to somehow gain God's favor, we make becoming a Christian much more difficult than it needs to be. We develop some system of religion or symptom, system of practice and we say, well, if you have, you have to do this and this and this and this, and, and, and if you don't do, miss one of those steps, somehow you miss salvation. I was in a revival meeting one time, and the evangelist said, well, if you don't pray, and if you don't sing, and when it's time to sing, and if you don't worship, and if you don't attend every church service, and he went down this long list of things, he said, then you're probably not a Christian. And uh, all of a sudden... People in the congregation, you know, you do that long enough and you hear that long enough and you begin to question, well, what does becoming a Christian really mean? And so Jesus gives real clarity to what it's all about in John chapter 3. The first verse says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a, <clears throat> excuse me, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
couple of things you need to understand about Nicodemus. First of all, he was a Pharisee. Now, you've probably heard that term if you've been around much, but let me define for you real quickly what a Pharisee was. There was a time between the Testaments, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the nation of Israel really began, began to stray from their foundation. They began to move away from all that they believed, and they were taking upon them the characteristics of the culture around them. And because of that, a group of men came together and they said, we have got to protect the law of Moses so that our people will follow it. And they, become, they became passionate for what they had as the Word of God. Now, is there anything wrong with being passionate about the Word of God? That's a no. You may say, no. Thank you. Of course we want to be passionate about the Word of God. The problem became this. The group of men became so passionate that they began to develop a system of oral traditions. And they said, well, if the Bible says this, then you've got to do this. And if we're going to do this, then we... And they made it harder and harder and harder to follow the simplicity of the Word of God. And then, by the time of Jesus' day, the oral traditions had taken the same... Uh, importance as the Word of God to them. And so all of it was mixed up together. 618 rules plus the law that they had of Moses and, and many other traditions and rituals that they developed. And they said, you got to do all these things in order to be a Christian, uh, in order to be a good Jew back in that day. And then they developed these uh, societies, I guess we'll call them, and they would study the Word and study the Word and study the Word, and they would study the Bible for hours and hours and hours. That was their professional job. They studied the Word of God, and they had discussions in the synagogue about what this meant or what that meant, and they took things way out of balance. And so Jesus comes on the scene, and he begins to tell people that he's the Messiah. In John chapter 1, the writer of John gives us a real strong definition of who Jesus is. He's the creator, and he's the sustainer, and he's God in the flesh. In, in John, that wonderful verse in verse 14, he said, we beheld his glory. Imagine having Jesus in the flesh in front of you. And John the Baptist began to preach that Jesus was coming, and he was preparing the way for Jesus to come. And then when Jesus came, John the Baptist identified him and pointed to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And the Pharisees were watching this because they liked John the Baptist. He was the, the prophet that they hadn't seen for 400 years. And they attested to him this... this uh, station in life of being a prophet of God, and they hadn't had many of them lately. And then this prophet of God says, he must increase, but I must decrease, that the Messiah is coming, and he pointed to Jesus, and he baptized Jesus. And so they began to ask questions, and they began to stir. In chapter 2, there's the marriage supper at Cana, and where Jesus turns water into wine, and that caused a stir. 
You know, a little later on in chapter 2, he goes on down to, to the synagogue and he cleans out the synagogue because there's money changers in the temple and he dumps over their tables and he, he throws them out and that made the Pharisees very angry. And so we come to chapter 3 and we find one Pharisee, it's interesting to me, one Pharisee, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus But he wasn't just a Pharisee. The Bible says he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the ruling uh, government portion of the Jewish nation. And the the Romans would allow the Jews to operate as a free nation under the Sanhedrin, but they told the Sanhedrin what to do. And so here's Nicodemus. He's an important person. He's a scholar in Old Testament Scripture. He's a leader in society. If you jump down to verse 10, I'll be back to verse 10, but notice what Jesus calls him. Are you, and he uses the definite article, the teacher of Israel. Nicodemus perhaps was the greatest teacher that all of Israel had had. This is the guy that's coming to Jesus by night. And I don't know that he was coming in secret. I think maybe he was coming because it's the only time he could get to Jesus. Because during the day, there's all kinds of things. He's healing and he's teaching and all kinds of things are going on in his schedule. And so they work out this time where they can meet and have a discussion without any interruption. And Nicodemus begins to say, Rabbi, you see, he, he understood Jesus was an equal. He said, Rabbi, which tells me G- that Nicodemus didn't come with an arrogant spirit. He came with a learning spirit, and he came with a sense of humility. And he said, we know that you're a teacher. Come from God. And so Nicodemus came not only with humility, but with respect. He said, for nobody can do these things that you do unless God be with him. And isn't that how human nature is? We like to look at all the things that people do. We like to look at the stuff. But Jesus looked right through his heart. And he changed the subject altogether. Nicodemus never asked how to be born again. But Jesus looked at him through his eyes into his heart. And he said, Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus had to be shocked. What does the term being born again mean? What do you mean I have to be born again? In fact, he asked Jesus in verse 4, he said, well, can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? What are you talking about, Jesus? Now, Nicodemus was a smart guy. And Jesus was a pretty smart person. I think both of them understood that Jesus wasn't talking about a literal somehow transitioning into a child again and crawling in your mother's womb and being born. I think Nicodemus understood he needed to start all over again. And imagine the thought that he must have had. Wait a minute, Jesus. I have spent my entire life studying the Scriptures And I have spent my entire life working and practicing and working harder and learning more and getting this degree and getting these credentials 
and moving up in my stature. I've spent my entire adult life working to be a follower of God. And you're wanting me to give all of that up and start over again? Jesus answered, verse 5, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. You see how the whole subject has changed here? Now they're having a gospel conversation. And so what we have to ask, Jesus, what do you mean when you say born of water and born of the Holy Spirit? Well, there's, there's a couple of different interpretations, and either one of them could be accurate. We know when a child is born today that they're born in amniotic fluid, which is water, basically. And then when we're born again, we know that it's the Holy Spirit that brings new birth And the traditional teaching is that Jesus was saying you've got to be born as a human being and you've got to be born again by the Holy Spirit. But remember, Nicodemus was a student of Old Testament Scripture. And throughout the Old Testament, there are pictures of cleansing by water. One of them is found in Ezekiel chapter 36. I want to read it to you. You don't need to turn there. I've got it typed out here somewhere. Jesus said, uh, I'm sorry, the prophet Ezekiel said, for I will take you, speaking to the Jewish family, from among the nations, gather you out of all countries and bring bring you into your own country. Then he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a heart of flesh in you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will keep my judgments and do them. In Ezekiel, water was a picture of the Holy Spirit changing a man's heart. Earlier in that chapter, The prophet had told them they had a heart of stone, and that's how we see the Pharisees, isn't it? They had that heart of stone, and they weren't about to change. But Jesus could tell Nicodemus came, and he was looking, he was searching, he needed answers. And so he began to talk to him in a familiar way about things he would understand. And perhaps Jesus was saying, you have to be born of water and the Spirit, There's not really a contrast word in between them in the New Testament. You have to be born of water and the the Holy... You have to be born by the Holy Spirit of God. He goes on and defines it even more. He says, that which is born of the flesh, verse 6, is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, Nicodemus. Don't marvel that I tell you, you have to be born again. Nicodemus, you've got to lay aside all of your preconceived ideas and all of the good work that you have done to somehow gain God's favor and all of that study and all of those human works. Nicodemus, you've got to set those aside and you've got to be born again. Paul experienced the same thing over in Philippians chapter 3 
when he writes this. It's an amazing passage. Paul was a Pharisee just like Nicodemus. He says in verse 4 of Philippians 3, though I might have confidence in the flesh, and that's what Nicodemus, that's where all Nicodemus's confidence was. It was in his flesh. It, it was what he did. It was in what he knew. It was what he practiced. And Paul said, though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he have confidence in the flesh, I more so. He's, then he, gives, he tells them all the work that he did. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law. Paul said he was blameless. He was a good guy, just like Nicodemus. And then he says in verse 7, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yea, indeed, he says, I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And Jesus looks to Nicodemus and he says, Nick, all of those things you've done, all of that law that you've read and memorized, which as a side note is amazing to me that they missed the Messiah because salvation by grace and Messiah is all through the Old Testament, but they missed it. Jesus says, Nicodemus, you've got to set that aside. It's rubbish, and you've got to start over again. The next few verses, beginning in verse 11, Jesus defines the gospel for us, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time there, but he takes another Old Testament story from the book of Numbers. The Jews were wandering in the wilderness during their 40-year plight, and they're just marching around in circles, basically, and there came a time where they ran into a pit of snakes somehow, and a lot of them were getting bitten by these snakes, and the snakes were, they were poisonous snakes, and they were killing them, and so Moses began to pray, and so God told Moses, I want you to build a serpent out of brass or bronze, and I want you to put it on a stick, and I want you to lift it high above the crowd. And when the nation of Israel, when the individuals, when they look at that, then they will be saved from the snakes. And it was a picture of Jesus Christ being nailed to a cross. Jesus said, when I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. He comes down to verse 16, and it's probably one of the pinnacles of the New Testament, isn't it? It's one of our great, great verses. So many people have this as their favorite verse. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his one and only unique son, no other son like him. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then he throws in this jab, for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world because that's what Pharisees did, you know. They had all their rules and regulations and they said, well, you haven't kept them, you're out. And you haven't kept them, you're out. And 
You know, they were just constantly requiring and requiring and requiring of the people. Jesus said, I've not come to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. You see, we tend to make things complicated, much more complicated than they are. And by the way, when does whosoever not mean whosoever, right? For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, you can bring your good works to the Lord. You can bring your uh, uh, academic status to the Lord. You can bring your um, accomplishments in life to the Lord and your, your religious activities to the Lord, just like Nicodemus did, and he will say to you, no, that's rubbish. You must be born again. It's not your religious activity plus Jesus, and it's not your family relationship plus Jesus, and it's not your denomination plus Jesus. It's all Jesus Christ who gave his son to die on Calvary so that you could be saved. And so I want to draw three quick conclusions, ask a few questions. First of all, I think that as a church family, we need to ask God to give us these kinds of God moments in our lives all the time. How many people do we run into that are like Nicodemus, that have questions or that have gone through difficulty and they're stressed out and they have questions about eternity and they're in our presence and we just never see it? I think of times in my community group that I teach on Sunday mornings, and a question comes up, and, and sometimes I'll just kind of give an answer, and I, I, then I think later, maybe they were asking that for a reason. Maybe there's a challenge that they're facing. And by the way, what a great place to come with our questions, right? I'm so glad that we have community groups where we can come together and we can be crazy and we can ask questions and we can come with all of our faults and all of our difficulties and all of our hardships in life and we can just cry together and laugh together and that's what community group is all about. And if you're not in one, man, are you missing out. I look so forward to that bunch of people I meet with every Sunday morning. They are such a good group. And I think, seriously, we have all grown so much together in our relationship with the Lord. We need to ask God to give us divine opportunities, give us a, a spiritual sensitivity when people come to us with questions. Every time somebody walks in the door of our church, we need to understand that's an appointment with God. Every time we meet somebody on the street and they ask us a question about our faith, understand that's a moment with God. That's a God moment, and it gives us an opportunity. And by the way, in our culture, so many people are hurting. And America is so much like a mission field today. We've got to understand the culture. If I were to go to a foreign country, let's say the Philippines, the first thing that you would do when you go into a foreign country is learn to understand their culture, and then you learn to understand their language so that you can relate to the people. 
America has so digressed away from spiritual things that we have to do the same thing here today. We have to understand the culture and understand the language before they will hear our words of faith. We need to work at that. Another thing, secondly, we need to learn to discern people's questions and be ready to give an answer. That means we have to study up. We have to be prepared because we're fellow travelers on a journey. We are not better than anyone, right? You get a a bunch of people on a journey and there's people on the front of the plane and there's people in the back of the plane, but we're all going in the same direction, right? And we don't need to feel like we have to slam dunk people into heaven, You know, I used to think if I met somebody, I had to take them through the whole gospel and lead them in the four spiritual laws and slam dunk them and put them into heaven right then and there. The truth is, Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the increase. And you may never know the encouragement that you give to somebody that may bring them to a place of faith. We have no indication here that Nicodemus got saved at this moment. Jesus went on and he's teaching the gospel and the conversation just kind of, you don't hear about Nicodemus anymore for a while. The third thing I want to say is don't trust your heart. I hear that all the time. Well, I'm just going to trust my heart. Boy, I don't trust mine. Jeremiah the prophet said, the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, I understand we want to train our heart and we can grow our heart in the things of faith, but our heart will always be a fallen human heart. Since that first sin in the Garden of Eden, man has been deceived somehow into thinking we can build a bridge to God. Well, if I'll just do this, and if I'll just participate in this, and if I'll just learn this, and if I'll just go to church, and I'll participate in all these activities, then somehow I'll build a bridge to God. I think it's in the book of Numbers. They thought they'd get to God by building a tower, so they built Babel, and God just confused the whole thing. We don't have to build a bridge to God. The Bible says God in His love God so loved the world, right, that he reached down to us. He sent Jesus Christ, God putting on sin and walking among men so that we could be saved. Imagine the word God became flesh in Jesus Christ. And John said, we beheld his glory. So Jesus and Nicodemus had this conversation. And I can imagine Nicodemus was shocked because he thought he had done well. He thought he had prepared well. All of his life, he was building a bridge to God. It's not that he was a bad man. He was a good man, but he had never been born again. And like I said, you, don't, you can't slam dunk people sometimes into heaven. And so even Jesus, let him think about it. Let him walk away. But we have every indication in John chapter 7, Nicodemus is defending Jesus before the Sanhedrin, saying he is Messiah. He is Son of God. We get down to the end of the book of John and 
Jesus has died on Calvary and they're taking his body down from the cross. And Joseph of Arimathea is taking, preparing his body for burial. And who do you think is right there helping him? But Nicodemus. You see, I think there had to be a time when Nicodemus went back into his study and with fresh eyes began to study the Scriptures. And with the Holy Spirit leading him and guiding him, there had to be a day. One morning he woke up. And like a bright sunrise, he got it. And all of a sudden he understood that you're not saved by all these good works, but you are saved by grace through faith. And Nicodemus surrendered and gave his heart to Christ. And that's what every one of us needs to do. And so I want to finish by asking, what about you? What are you trusting in for your salvation? Nicodemus was trusting in his good works and trusting in his family relationship. He was a Jew, and he knew the Jews were God's chosen people, so he had to be okay, right? He was trusting in his position in society and he had risen all the way to the top. And he came to realize all of that is rubbish. And he surrendered to Jesus Christ. Do you agree with God this morning that our works are inadequate? Do you believe that Jesus Christ paid the price for your sin on Calvary? Then just tell him. Confess to him that you can't do this on your own. That we're all fallen, that we're all sinners, and no matter where we are on that scale of sinners, we're all sinners. And we need Jesus Christ. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, For he made him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we, listen, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Wow. Would you invite Jesus into your heart? Would you surrender to Him and say, Jesus, all of the stuff I've been relying on is not enough. Today, I I, I push all that aside and I'm trusting you. I ask you to save me. Come into my life. Be the Lord of my life. Jesus says, come unto me, all you that labor. Nicodemus had worked so hard. Jesus says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Would you bow your heads, please?